deer do four things to, su to survive, feed, breed, sleep, and avoid predation. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, here with my sidekick, Evan Williams. Um, today, our guest is CJ Winan from Bowhunter Magazine. He's the uh, hunting whitetail columnist over at Bowhunter and a biologist by trade. And um, it's a pleasure to have you on, CJ. Uh, me and CJ have been buddies for a long time. Um, excited to talk to you, buddy. How are you doing? Good morning. Fine. You know, we've been buddies for over 20 years, although I don't want to re remind myself of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say you're fine, but you've had, uh, you've had a pretty rough year. Um, you sent me <laughs> a photo of your shoulder the other day and, uh, that looked ridiculous. What in the world did you do to yourself? Yeah. Two years ago, I had rotator cuff labrum on both shoulders. And, wow. uh, this year, uh, I broke my, my humerus. Uh, so yeah, my arm, uh, the upper ball joint broke in eight different pieces. Uh, but, uh, I'm up to about, uh, 54 pounds right now. So it's, uh, thank God for daughters that have bows that are lighter weight than I'm used to shooting, but it, it's getting better day after day. Now, is this, is this an injury that you've been dealing with or did you fall no, or twist off. or tweak or <laughs> Evan I fell out of a tree uh -huh. during turkey season that uh, I just let go <laughs> of the uh, the safety line and the whole uh, tree stand collapsed on me I was breaking it down you were you were taking a, a stand oh, out I was gonna, yeah. I was say that you must be the only person I know that is spring turkey hunting in a tree but I, I'm glad to, I'm glad to get that clarification. I thought we were going to have to do a new new podcast this spring on turkey tactics. Yeah, no fun. Thank God I'm still alive. No broken neck or back. With uh, 18 feet, gravity wins. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you sent me those X-ray photos, uh, I know you broke your humerus, but there was nothing humorous about those photographs. <laughs> like how many screws? It it, it was ugly. Yeah. Yeah, 10 screws. And Ugh. they were long screws. Like, they would go all the way through the bone in his arm, and it's all up there right in the shoulder socket, basically. And, man, just looking at it, it's like you, you don't want to fall out of a tree. Yeah. Um, Wear your harness. Wear a he, saddle. Well, yeah. the thing is, CJ is – he's he's a Nazi about that. So, yeah. Um. He, he literally, he's, you're always connected to your tree. How in the world did you, did it happen? Yeah, I was uh, on the, on the tree stand itself. And of course the safety line is above your, you know, above your neck. Mm -hmm. And I pulled it through, dropped it, was getting down on my next step, just to angle around to pull the cinch uh, cord around the tree stand. And as I was leaning down, the whole tree stand just completely busted. Uh, it did a literally a 90 degree from perpendicular to the tree, and then it went parallel to the tree. And yeah, I mean, literally two seconds before I just released the the lifeline. Oh my god! Uh, so stuff happened. So so you That's had a lifeline, but you had unclipped from the lifeline yeah. as you were setting it up. Gotcha. Yeah. What he didn't have was the the climbers line the line belt. belt 
that Bingo. You, you've got to, man, for those of yeah. you guys listening, uh, man, that lineman's belt that goes on your harness, oh. uh, it's super important before you, before you unhook from that mm-hmm. lifeline or whatever you have up top, you just sling that thing around the trunk of the tree, then you unhook. And if that happens to you, and it's, it's crazy when I was talking to CJ the other day, planning this podcast, I had been out checking some tree stands uh, that had been there over the last year and just trimming them out and stuff like that. And uh, two of them, the, the strap on the dang thing, the tree had grown in circumference enough to where that strap got weak and the strap was busted on two of them. And, you know, I had to completely redo them or whatever, but in your situation, CJ, that strap was probably just almost ready to pop and mm-hmm. you being on there just the, and, and right after you unhook the, the lifeline and you, Oh man, it's just terrible. Yeah, we've terrible. all done it. Uh, yeah. Stupid trick. Uh, hold myself hundred percent responsible, but it happens. Oh man. But let's well, talk about a better subject. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'm ready to cry. Especially with whitetail hunting as, as, much as it's getting ready to kick off, you know, starting with tree stand safety is never a bad thing. Yeah. Yep. That's no, exactly I hear right. You. I hear you, Evan. Let me uh, start this off. Uh, you know, I do a lot of seminars, different groups around the country and uh, Evan will pick on you and I'm not picking on you per se, but just uh, tell me your first thought. When I say white-tailed deer buck, five and a half years old, what do you think? The first thing that pops in your head. Big old pot belly and sway backed. Like I just, first thing in my mind is just this rectangular body that swoops in the middle, full muscular development up through the front shoulders. And I just think old, mature. I don't even get a score in my head to be very honest. Just my area that I've typically hunt in Kansas is so inconsistent when we do see something that age. You know, we had a seven and a half year old we killed two years ago that was 144 inches. And we had a three and a half year old we shot last year that we misjudged and was 165, 166. So, but Evan, I absolutely love your answer. You Uh, don't, you, you, you answered it better than I could, because generally when I say five and a half, people automatically think Boone and Crockett, 170 inches. And this is a big misconception when you look at all of the study done in South Texas, they put all mature bucks, five and a half in years and older, and graph them by antler score. And what it was, it was real interesting. It was a bell-shaped curve. We had some deer that were literally five and a half years old that scored 80 inches of antler. On the other side of the bell-shaped curve, we have, of course, 170-inch-plus inches of antler. But the vast majority on that bell-shaped curve, again, of all bucks, five and a half years or older, scored around 130, Hmm. 140-inch. Texas, especially that part of the world, is dependent on the wet spring. You have a wet spring, you got green vegetation, so it could be a little bit more of or less depending on what part of the country you're in but just because a deer is five and a half years old does not mean it's a above Mm -hmm. the curve it could be only be 110 so your answer evan was perfect 
that when you see a five and a half year old deer, whether it only scores 125 or 130 inches, that's a trophy. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, like last year, Danny, you haven't seen the boner TV. It'll be out. I, I had one last year. Uh, same thing like you did, Evan. They called it baby five. It looked like next year it's going to be a clean six by six. It scored 155 inches. <laughs> You'll like this. I saw it six times within a hundred within 20 yards that I could have killed it. Mm -hmm. But why are you going to shoot a three and a half year old that only scores 155 inches? I mean, next year he's probably going to be a booner. The, there, there's no doubt. The the only now, the only time I would interject and say yes, um, and I and I would say this because we're debating this on a buddy's farm in Nebraska. He's got what we think is a three and a half year old who's probably going to go mid to upper 170s. What? He, he doesn't want to shoot him. And I, we're both in agreement, but we also both know who his neighbors are. And if he doesn't, they will. So it's one of those do you roll the dice and let him walk because of how Nebraska specifically has structured their season? Knowing he's living on the fringes of your property, if he crosses that fence, your neighbors aren't going to pass him because they're looking at antlers. They're not looking at body and age. Well, uh, yeah, I hear you. And that's everyone around the country has that dilemma. Uh, my favorite acronym is DDDG. DDDG, which stands for Dead Deer Don't Grow. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think you can make the the pretty the connection very easily. When you look at data from a year and a half old deer to a two and a half year old deer, the actual increase in antler production. Uh, Danny, if I gave you a hundred dollars today, and I told you if you don't spend it next year, I'll give you another hundred dollars. So you're getting two hundred dollars. Right. Would that be a good investment that uh, you probably entertain? Absolutely. Yeah, well, absolutely. That's exactly what happens, the difference between a year-and-a-half-old deer and a two-and-a-half-year-old deer. On average, they're they going to double inside from year-and-a-half to two-and-a-half. Yeah. Now, when you go from two-and-a-half to three-and-a-half, it's 1.25 increase. Three-and-a-half to four-and-a-half, 1.16. And from one four-and-a-half to five-and-a-half, it's just a little over one. Uh, basically, what happens, the buck will basically mature uh, antler growth in around five-and-a-half. And, a half, and that, that is a correct assumption. But if we have a little buck that's, say, 42 inches at a year-and-a-half, we can project mathematically that he's going to be about 138 when he's five and a half years old. If we have a 50 inch deer at a year and a half, he's going to be really close to Boone and Crockett, statistically speaking. Hmm. So the question comes up for a lot of people in the country. Well, we don't have two and a half or three and a half year old deer. You know, should I shoot these little spikes or, or what mm -hmm. have you? Well, there and as, that was going to be one of my questions is, you know, I've, I've lived down, in Mississippi and a lot of them say shoot the spikes because they're never going to amount to anything. But I've seen statistical data through deer and deer hunting that says the complete opposite. Well, <laughs> let's go back to the late 1980s. Texas Parks and Wildlife did a study and they had all these little spike books and they compared them to their brothers and their first cousins that were four, five, six, and eights at a year and a half old. Mm -hmm. They let them live 
till they were five and a half years old. And what they found was those little spikes were never as big as their brothers and their first cousins by the time they were five and a half. Takeaway <laughs> message, hey, kill those spikes, get them out of the, the herd, get them out of the genetic pool. Well, that was the answer. Kill spikes. At, at, in the 1980s. 80s, right? A few years okay. later, Mississippi State did the exact same study. But what they found was those little spikes, by the time that they were five and a half, guess what? They could be 160, 170, 180 inch deer. So these were both Penn State or Penn studies. It's only at the time mm-hmm. we collect this data. They were given ad lib, I mean, protein 20% every single bite that they had. Mm-hmm. And we had bipolar conclusions on these studies. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, I wrote one time we had the Civil War all over again between Texas and Mississippi State. Mm-hmm. Both <laughs> studies were correct, but their conclusions were bipolar. Now, again, I don't want to discredit any biologist, but we all know food, nutrition, age, and genetics determines antler quality. We've been, that's been drilled into our heads for the last 50 years. Well, let me be the first biologist to tell you when a biologist doesn't know something, you know what we say, Danny? We go, it's genetics. <laughs> and Danny shakes his head, yes. <laughs> yeah. That means we don't know. You're right. And there's so much data on that first year of antlers. It's, it's a really a pain in the butt because so much can happen to that little spike environmentally. One, its mama could have been bred late. That's that's what I was going to ask is, is whether they turn into a spike or a little four point or a little six point, that first rack that they grow at a year and a half old, how much does that have to do with how late in the, you know, early in the, uh, birth cycle or late in the birth cycle, well, you yeah. know, one that was born at the end of June, let's say, you know, um, and is just much smaller bodied and everything by the time that he gets to uh, a year and a half. Yeah, he hasn't yeah. caught up. You, you nailed it. Chances are, you know, we talk about secondary and tertiary ruts. Well, yeah, I've seen, you know, from a hunting standpoint, actual secondary ruts, but from the lab, what we know is, if a doe, generally up north, if a doe fawn is 80 pounds live weight, she can successfully go through uh, estrus and she can breed. Down south, it's probably 70 pounds, uh, depending where you are. But if it's a doe fawn, and say it's January, say up north, and she's 80 pounds and she breeds. Well, like you said, Danny, instead of end of May, beginning of June, her fawn will be born, hell, it could be in July. Really? Yeah. When you look at a nutritional standpoint on the quality of nutrition and the quantity of nutrition, guess what? That little button buck, we call them BBs, he's already 30 days, a whole month behind everybody else. Yeah. So by the time he's a year and a half old, he's like, he's stunted. He could also have a bad winter. The spring, it doesn't green up, say it's a little bit later than normal. The mama, of course, which is lactating, which means she's in milk, she could be a dominant uh, doe in the area, but there's not good habitat. Thus, she has poor milk, which Mm. is transferred 
to her twin fawns. Mm -hmm. And the twin fawns just haven't gotten a chance to grow up yet. You know, again, statistically, we're looking at that first set of antlers, uh, say 25% of its full potential. But that 25% number, there's a lot of noise in that. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. so much noise that we always put a little asterisk next to it waiting for deer to be at least two and a half years old, then we can get a much better idea on the quality of buck that he will actually become in future years. So you so, won't, you won't really know what you're looking at until they have their second rack. Bingo. Right. Yeah, we nailed okay. it. You know, here's something else that just came up. It just kind of amazed me. You know, there's, you know, state DNR say, oh, geez, uh, we have too many deer. Shoot does, shoot does. Mm-hmm. Uh, other DNR say, you know, just the opposite. Well, you got to understand our state buddies, they're managing holistically throughout the state. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what a. Not, yeah, not regionally or yeah, anything it, like it's that. It's tough. It's just tough to do. And <laughs> well, what do you do if you're a state deer biologist? Well, Many times, of course, people are taking habitat management and herd management into their own, you know, the one inch trigger rule. You know, it, I move my index finger or my thumb one inch and I'm making deer management decisions by taking out one doe, two does, 10 does, yearling bucks, older bucks, what have you. And we, what we have always said, if, if your population is below carrying capacity and by definition, the total number of critters that are living in your back 40, whether it's bear, deer, turkey, squirrels, rabbits, we take those numbers in the worst time of year, i.e. generally March, April. Prior to green spring up, that's when we come up with density, deer per square mile. Uh, is that, is and, that just because that's when they're herded up the tightest? No, it's coming my habitat. It's the worst type of habitat that they you, can have. You've got the you've got the least amount of Food. forageable, yeah, forageable sources. Food. So what we have done in many areas, we have suggested to hunters that if you have a low deer population, which many people in you know believe that they have, well, what happens is you'll see a doe with two fawns and end of your food plot or wherever, and then here comes another adult doe come in. Mm-hmm. So all right, which one do you shoot? Do you shoot the one with two fawns or do you shoot the one that's an adult doe by herself? Again, we're assuming we have a low deer density. And what biologists have always said is take that lone doe, knock her out because she's quote unquote. Because we're dry, correct? We're assuming she's dry. I eat, yeah, I'll add to it, Evan. You're, you're, you're right. She's a bad mama. Mm. You know, she lost her fawns. Uh, now she's dry because she's not in milk. She's not lactating. She's dry. And we've always said that, but there was no data to actually back it up. Well, uh, John Kilgo, Dr. Kilgo down in the Savannah River, down in the border of South Carolina, Georgia, did some really interesting data. And it's a low sample size, but what he found was he had marked deer. These are all free ranging deer and he put ear tags in them so he can identify them. And through the years, he actually observed whether these does had fawns with them, i.e. one doe or it's going to be one fawn, no fawns or two fawns. Mm -hmm. And what he found was, was just intriguing to me. A third of does 
had two fawns with them that mm-hmm. they actually had their two fawns survive. Another third of these does only had one fawn with them. Another third had zero fawns with them. Now, here's what's cool. This doe, when they first captured her, was three, three and a half years old. They saw her at four and a half, five and a half, six and a half, and seven and a half years old. Remember I told you about the third of the does have no fawns recruited into the population? It sure seems that the biologists were right that if she's a bad mama at a year and a half or two and a half or three and a half, she's probably a bad mama the rest of her life. We always thought that, well, with age comes wisdom, that they become a better mama. That is not true at all. They suck at the beginning. They suck at the end. Whereas some mamas are just the opposite. When hunters talk about, you know, we talk about, you know, and I get this question every single year. Well, I'm not shooting the doe with two fawns. Those two fawns will die. Well, they're ruminants. And basically a a doe fawn, buck fawn, whatever it is, will be functional ruminants at anywhere from six to eight weeks after birth. Mm. So they will survive. That's Mm -hmm. why our hunting seasons basically don't start till September. In many states, a hundred percent, they I guarantee they're going to live. And especially now you've seen it. You've been hunting as long as I have both of y'all that I've seen those actually nurse fawns in November, mm-hmm. November. Yeah. No, they're excellent yeah. mamas. Mm-hmm. Can those fawns survive? 100%. They can survive. So when you take all this data, put it all together, it's not really hard math at all. An average doe, We'll have two fawns. She'll drop two fawns generally end of May, beginning of June. Now, here's my question. Uh, Evan, we'll go back to you. What percentage of those two fawns make it to the first fall? 2.0? What's your guess? Out of those two fawns that hit the ground in June, how many survived to the first six months of age? I mean, first, before you gave me numbers, I would have said 70%. Incorrect. Is it lower? 50%. 50%. 50%. We call this recruitment rate. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, Danny, whether you're in Colorado, Maine, Florida, I'm just, you know, recruitment rate is obviously higher in the Midwest ag area. We have recruitment rates 1.2, 1.3. Uh, but down south now, with the in, <laughs> when the coyotes had come in, I always pick on South Carolina. They have a recruitment rate, you'll love this, 0.4, 0. Really? 0.4 fawns. So literally, it takes two and a half adult fawns, or excuse me, two and a half adult uh, does to recruit one fawn. Holy smokes. Why? Is, is it because of coyotes? Yeah, well, a lot of different things, but uh, coyotes are one of them. Now, I don't want to get off. I mean, we can talk an hour on coyotes. I, I get it. But when you look, you know, especially in a lot of the northern states, no state, repeat, no state DNR brought in coyotes. I hear this every year. They, it's, it's totally, you know, I'll give you my house, my, the kids, all my boat that they did. It just did not happen. Mm-hmm. And it came in naturally. But when you look at recruitment rates on all these like Midwestern states and northern states, and we've been collecting recruitment rates for literally 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. When you look at that recruitment rate up north, guess what? 
the recruitment rate is 0.91, 1.1, 0.91. It has not changed in 30, 40 years. But what has happened the last 30, 40 years in the Midwest and the North? We've had coyotes come in naturally. Mm -hmm. So when people say that coyotes are impacting our herd in a negative standpoint up North, I go, really? Is that correct? Mm. Look at my recruitment rates. They haven't changed. Mm -hmm. Is Is there, is there anything to be said for that, that lack of change with increased agricultural practices and efficiency there too, though? Uh, Yes and no. Because when you look at the timing of ag, it's only part of the year. Remember, mm-hmm. recruit uh, uh, carrying capacity. Uh, there's not many ag plants left in the winter time. Mm-hmm. So it can, if you do not harvest your crop, mm-hmm. but for the vast majority, that's not happening. Now, let's right. flip out down south where we had recruitment rates of one, one, one point eight point seven. It bounces around, but basically one, making it simple. Now, a lot of the southeastern states have recruitment rates of 0.7. What has impacted? Um, well, of course, maturing forests, clean farming practices. There's no less edge, and hey, it's coyotes. There's no question that are impacting our deer herds. And we're just starting to find a lot more data about those dogs. Of uh, You know, did they come in from Canada? Yeah. Is there wolf in them? Yeah. We know genetically. Is there feral dog in them? Yes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on North Carolina, you know, the red wolf, we've done genetic studies on these dogs. They're only 25% wolf. 75% coyote. And I guarantee you, if you sh- one ran by you, you'd shoot it in a heartbeat thinking it's a coyote. But guess what? It's technically only three quarters coyote. So is it really a wolf? And that's where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and federal judges are having trouble right now on that definition. What's a definition of a wolf? Hmm. It's tough. Up in the mid uh, Great Lakes states, 50-50. 50% wolf. 50% coyote. Really? When, you know, Danny, you know, you know, Dr. Dave. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Dave Reed has been writing for Bowhunter Magazine since 1971. He mm-hmm. taught us in school way back in the 80s, coyotes or a red wolves eat deer. Well, that's true. They do eat deer. But now what's happening with this? We have coyotes breeding with actual coyotes and they're surviving. It blows, blows your mind away. We have a new dog in town and it's the coyotes, but you know, we're, we're going to have to live with them. Uh, it's nothing we can really do uh, besides trapping prior to fawning season. Mm-hmm. That's the best time to trap and shoot coyotes. Mm. In fact, when you measure again, going back to when I pick on you, Evan, that recruitment rate, The highest Mm -hmm. depredation of coyotes is basically within the first four to six weeks of them being born. So if you take those coyotes out prior to the fawning season, you open up an open niche that the fawns have a better chance of survival. After four to six weeks, they can just about outrun almost everything. Uh, Some other data up in uh, Pennsylvania, which kind of blew me away. uh, When you look at all predation, Statewide in the state of Pennsylvania, and I'm sure this is all of the northern states, 50% of uh, fawn depredation were coyotes. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Doesn't surprise me. Another 50% were black bear. That's what I was going to, yeah. that's what I thought. I never would have guessed it was that high, mm. but it, uh, it is. It, it, there's, there's no doubt that that's what's happening. So uh, again, things happen. And, and right now we're in October, you know, and we've heard of, you know, years after growing up, the October law. Mm-hmm. Uh, do deer decrease their movements during the October time frame? Well, years ago, we had radio telemetry when I was in grad school, and it's called triangulation. And working your butt off, it would basically we'd get like one deer location every 45 minutes. That's what I mean, that's what would happen. Now, with GPS and cellular technology, we get thousands of data points on where our deer are on a daily basis. I mean, the, the, the data in, is just phenomenal. When you look at weekly movement patterns in the pre-rut, say Louisiana, guess what? In October, it has increased. How about uh, Maryland? It has increased. How about Texas? And I'm looking at three different data sets, and guess what? They have all increased deer movements during that October law. But here's what happens. And I used to be guilty of it. And I still am. You get set on these deer like prior to velvet. They're still in velvet. And all of a sudden, like, this is great. I have these things patterned. They're, they're in the same area year after week, after week, after week, you set your tree stand up and it's great for the first two weeks of the season. But then October comes and they disappear. Yeah. The velvet sheds, more testosterone's getting in. Well, what in the world happens? Well, we do know. Pecking orders get established. I'm, oh, I'm sorry? Pecking orders get established. Oh, yeah. oh there's no, no question. But here's what, get a little bit more data. We have, you know, biologists said for years, deer have a one square mile home range. Well, again, depending on habitat, sometimes it's smaller, sometimes it's larger, but we're roughly, say, one square mile. And we have what's called site fidelity, uh, love of site. Deer will not leave that one square mile area. That is 640 acres. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. within that, what we started to see over the years is we call a core area. By definition, you can do this statistically. When you have all these data points, 50% or more of all these movements can be dictated into a core area. Right. So when you go into this great big home range and you go into this center or wherever this area is, you have a 50% chance of seeing this buck well core areas are dynamic and work with me here this is not a hundred percent the biologist would probably argue with this but i want you to get the point here core areas within a deer's home range are dynamic which means they they move the four first core area that a buck will, will spend his time on is i call it the velvet core area mm-hmm. he's in there we see at the beginning of the season all of a sudden, uh, the testosterone increases, velvet comes off, and his core area shifts to, say, oak area, where all the acorns are dropping. Mm-hmm. Then he'll take that core area, he'll glean that area of no more acorns, he'll go to like the crop core area, bean, corn, alfalfa, he'll utilize that core area. 
The next core area, which gets into what we're doing right now for many parts of the country, is a leaf drop, i.e. the security cover in his home range has changed with all the leaves are dropping. Mm -hmm. And so he's moving his core area again. And then, of course, we have the rut, which is almost pretty much spastic all over. And then winter cover, core area. Now, I want you to get the point here. These core areas with its home range change from one location to the other. But Evan, you know how Danny is. He sets his tree stand up in September and he doesn't move it all year long. (laughs) And he hasn't seen any deer in October. Is he stupid? Go ahead, Evan. You can answer that. (laughs) No, he's just, he's as habitual as those deer. Bingo. Bingo. You have to be, don't be afraid to move. Now, again, I'll hear it, but if I move and get too aggressive, I'm going to bump that deer out of my area. I'm I'm not going to disagree with that, Mm -hmm. possibly, but guess what? If you stick your tree stand where Danny's had it since September, you ain't never going to see that deer anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Cause they're not, they're not where they're at when the, when it was September. Bingo. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to Mm -hmm. move. And we've, we found this out through the years and it's taken me years to understand this individual deer. Some deer will just put up with all kinds of human presence. Other deer will not. We've all hunted, you know, we hump it back, you know, a mile or two with their tree stands or everything else or deer decoys. We don't see a darn deer. We get back to the truck and five of them jump out, mm-hmm. you know, in the parking lot. I mean, what's up with that? Deer, and this is where, of course, the, the trail cameras are just absolute magic. Uh, it actually can see areas that we're on. And what I would suggest just for the funsies, if you have an extra camera, just put it randomly in the woods where you may not want to hunt. And I have been educated myself on different small parcels of wood lot that I never would probably hunt hunt. And these cameras are picking up movement that I never would have guessed. Well, I, I have a question for you regarding this October lull, CJ. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a believer in the October lull. And a lot of why I believe in it is just from uh, observing deer. Now, granted, I'm in eastern Colorado, which is uh, completely different terrain than a lot of the whitetail habitat across the country. But I've watched it in both whitetails and muleys where once that velvet comes off and they're in that October stage, you know, the month before the rut, I've always felt like something biologically innate in them. An instinct tells them they, they know what's coming and Mm -hmm. they go into this mode where they don't want to travel much, where they literally will find a little pocket. And sometimes it's an obscure little pocket where you would never guess that you're going to find them or whatever. And they, if they've got browse right there, if they've got food right there and quick access to water, that literally they become this lazy, lethargic eating and drinking Mm -hmm. machine. And the only other thing that they seem to do is occasionally rub things with their neck to build their their neck muscles, you know, and, and, uh, you know, tear some trees up in there. But I've I've watched them like stay in these little pockets where if you didn't happen to see them when they were on their feet and the reason you hardly ever do 
is because they're betting down. They're betting down right at the beginning of the day. They might get up a few times during the middle of the day and 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 eat some more, but they're gorging themselves nonstop, and they're just not going anywhere. Is there is there truth to that? No, uh, there's not. I hear what you're saying, but let me rephrase what you just said. Deer do four things to su- to survive: feed, breed, sleep, and avoid predation. I mean, that's pretty much it. Okay. When you, you look at step counts, the number of steps a deer takes, it actually increases during that October law period. Yeah, but are they covering ground? Is that just because it, they're stepping is, around yeah. eating? Oh, perfect, Danny. You, you, you just nailed it. What I didn't say was movement mm-hmm. from A to B. Not because it's a mile across, they're increasing because of testosterone. The step increase is increasing, but it could be in a smaller area. Yeah. If you're stuck on the next gully, draw, um, you know, a hundred yards away, you're not seeing them move over there. I think you nailed it. Are they walking in a little circle? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. Their core area is decreased because they can feed, breed, sleep, and avoid predation in that area. You know, let me rephrase what you just said also. Oh, those deer are nocturnal. They became nocturnal. And I, I wrote this. Deer are not, nor do they become nocturnal. Mm-hmm. If you aren't seeing them at the same time and place as you have been bec- because they've likely adjusted where they spend their time, not when. Mm-hmm. When you look mm-hmm. at all the different data, deer are crepuscular. Morning afternoon you know this and if you're going to say you could almost make the argument deer are more nocturnal than they are diurnal that's 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 definitely true and you know you get questions right now well i'm going to you know hump it in and i'm going to stay all day and that's great you can do you know 10 12 hours in a tree stand but when you look at movement patterns during those noontime hours it's still way below morning and afternoon, way mm-hmm. below. Mm-hmm. And But when you look at it from another point of view, when you look at deer noontime movement patterns, say spring, summer, and then look at it during the rut, it's the highest it'll be all year during those movement patterns, during noontime hours, during the rut. Sure, it will, but it's not nearly as much. But what I did the last, uh, I took some data from Pope and Young, now, again, there's some noise in this data. My, my question uh, to the data was, we took all the people shot uh, Pope and Young Buck, 125 inches or, more, or better, and what time of day did you harvest this deer? Mm-hmm. Now, think about this. Evan, if you had to pick when you shot most of your deer, your bigger deer, would you say morning or afternoon? I've had better success rates between like 9 and 1030. Morning. Yeah. Danny, what about you? Morning or afternoon? Man, I'd say it's kind of an even split with it. I'm I'm morning. And that's where I was. And when I did a bunch of the day, and it was a good sample size, it was definitely in the afternoon. Now, again, there's some noise in this data from the Pope and Young data because maybe 75% of all these hunters only hunted in the afternoon. Mm. So it was biasing that afternoon time time period. Uh, what we would do, you know, from a hypothesis testing is what you said, Danny, 
50% are killed in the morning, 50% in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, but from movement patterns and harvest patterns, it seems to be afternoon is a little bit better than morning. Hmm. For me personally, Evan, I'm with you. I, again, this is what the data says, but if you're neck of the woods, you're morning, you know, and it gets, it gets into how do you sneak in into your woods? Yeah. It's still dark. In the thousand dollar question, reverse, how do you sneak out? I think we bug, booger up more hunting spots going into and coming out of our area than we do hunting. Some deer just hate people being around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we I took a boy out last night and he's a new hunter, 35 years old. And, and this comes up, you know, the best shot. And, you know, I've seen some on the videos and they're just terrible. But basically for deer, you know, what we know, one third up, two thirds down. And because we see it on video, we have that luxury. But the average guy doesn't see that they, quote, ducked an arrow. Right. And a question came up, which was really a good question. Do you shoot deer when they have their head down or in the head up? with their head up up, up. <laughs> and why is yeah. that because they can use that head as a lever to the, drop faster the pendulum, the pendulum effect yep and it takes a half a second longer to drop that head and then get up on their hind quarters and jump forward but obviously don't ever shoot deer when they're looking at you when it's looking away and again, they could see the, they do the trick, you know, I'm looking right at you and it looks like they're looking away, but a lot of people don't realize that head up. Yes, that's definitely. And within, depending on your, of course, your bow set up, whether you're shooting, you know, 300 feet per second or 250 feet per second, you know. Well, I, I also believe that that's a little bit skewed by, you know, is, is the deer's head down in a bunch of thick cover? Or is it, right. is its head down in, you know, uh, golf course grass? If, if there's if it's, nothing between if it's, if it's you, down in corn or acorns, right? Like yeah. they're, they're non and crunching. Like that's gonna... a lot of times when their head's down, they're chewing and they're, and you just like you're talking about, Evan, you've got noise cover that's happening inside their head, you know, mm -hmm. but you, I, I mean, I saw Grant Woods's video on that and it is telling yeah. Yeah. I don't think it really matters. I think it's just the sound of the bow and the sound of the arrow flying through the air. See, I don't be... buy the arrow. I don't buy the arrow. I think by the time they hear that arrow, I haven't done the math on it. You know, our, our arrows getting there at 200 and let's say on average, 270, 80. 280 feet per second or something like that. And what's the speed of sound? 1100 feet per second, something yes. along those lines. Well, I haven't done the math on it to see how far away they can hear it, but I think I've always felt that it's the sound of the bow that's getting to them first. Uh, I'd argue that I'd say bow and arrow. Do this real simple to do. Just go behind your barn. Or well, we've done have, it. We've have, done have it someone, like extensively. Yeah. Do feathers and then do veins. World of difference. I, I agree. I agree. I'm just wondering, like, that noise of the bow happens so long before they hear the noise of the arrow. They definitely hear the noise of the arrow. They, but it might be when it's 10 yards from them. And it takes a half a second for them to drop. <laughs> I don't, I don't feel like or they less. can drop it yeah. 10 yards. 
literally like, well, I last year in Kansas, I took a frontal shot on a buck that was nine yards away from me. And he was looking directly at me with his ears pinned at me so he can hear everything. And at nine yards, he did not have a chance to flinch before that arrow well, hit him. He's staring at your decoy, no, too. He was not. He was he was looking at me and he he gave me the head, the head up like that. You know, oh, did oh he? yeah. He, so he got to that nine yard part point and i was already at full draw on him had my pin buried in his chest he walked up at nine yards stopped and looked at me and then did the head up like that like oh this ain't right just bam open his chest up and for he you. did not he did not have time to flinch and i i mean i've watched it frame by frame he didn't even tense before that arrow hit him now hmm. uh, a lot of times i cj i feel like when you when we watch those those shots back frame by frame, a lot of times they are doing their entire drop in the last 10 yards that the arrow is traveling. However, Mm -hmm. they had time to hear that noise out there at 20 or 30 yards and start their drop. You know what I mean? So uh, the question is how close, how close do they hear it? How far is that arrow from them when they start to hear it? They hear the bow Mm -hmm. go off way over there before the arrow is even out of the bow, like as the arrow's leaving the bow. And at 1,100 feet per second, that noise travels to the ear of the deer. Now, the arrow itself, let's take that bow completely out of the equation. They, you shoot a bow that is completely silent. You, but you bought a Hoyt. Um, (laughs) uh, Let's just say that that did exist. And there was a bow that made absolutely zero noise. If they don't hear that arrow till it's 10 yards away from them, I don't believe they can react. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I can add on what you're saying, Danny, because we're on the same page, depending on your bow setup, what I have found, and this is just me, no science. When you shoot a deer 25 yards past, they're going to react one to the bow, two to the veins that magic 25 yards okay within Mm -hmm. 20 yards they don't have time to react as much as they do when they're out 25 yards i I had one duck me at 22 and well again you know depending Mm -hmm. on everybody's setup yeah i I hear you yeah let me ask you a question danny does the moon affect the timing of the rut i don't know i'm not a biologist you tell me You've been hunting as long as I have, son. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, like. I, mean, I can't. As Esther's for no, it's just like it's just like women. Like there's a certain time that it starts the cycle, but isn't it? Isn't it light sensitive based on um, the time of day, the length of day? Well, well, but it also has to do with the solstice. It's like. I, I, Two months to after you, summer solstice question, or something like CJ, that. I don't personally, based on everything that I've ever learned, I don't believe that the moon phase affects it. I I believe the moon phase affects deer movement um, and what time of day that they move possibly. Um, but I don't, I don't believe that it affects when they come in. I, I always was taught that it was the length of the daylight hours that the length of the day that caused the deer to come mm-hmm. in. That, am I yeah. right? Yeah, we call it photo period. Yeah. Okay. There, yeah. Photo. That, that's the correct yeah. term. And Danny, I'm assuming that your granddaddy and my granddaddy were were one of the same. 
because when it's a full moon, them deer are out feeding all night long. So during the day when we hunt them, they're going to move less because they are out all night feeding. That's what my granddaddy would tell me. That's what, yeah, yeah that's what I've been told for ages. Is, is yes. that true? I don't know. <laughs> no correlation whatsoever. None. Zero. So, so even, even when you have a full moon during the rut, you don't think that spurs more evening activity because of the amount of light that's being produced by the moon for them to be out feeding longer None. and therefore going to bed quicker None. and staying there? None whatsoever. So what do you feel about these moon phase charts and things like that, CJ, like the overhead and the underfoot? And, mm -hmm. it, you know, the correlation that some people have drawn to deer being on their feet because the moon is underfoot or overhead. The moon has exactly zero percent correlation with deer movements during the rut or outside the rut. Ooh, we have and a couple, have billions we have a couple of guys points. that I would love to have on the podcast with CJ. <laughs> Show Let's do this. The Let's data. do this. I, yep. I have millions of data points that I could show you. Okay. show you now again hey if you believe the moon's this and that and you shot a 200 inch book fine yeah. go for it yeah i, I, I yeah. probably believe it too but show me the data i don't want dead deer i want to see actual movement data you have mm -hmm. to understand during the the throughout the year the moon has all kinds of different effects on on the people and what we see right one the you know for the illuminosity how bright it is we know that yeah right? well yep. let's look at that and it could be completely cloudy 50 miles away it could be clear because of cloud cover real hard to get that data okay what mm -hmm. we can get data on is aspect of the moon in relation to the earth is it 30 degrees is it 80 degrees is it, you know, directly above us, directly below us? We can get at, you know, azimuth uh, angles of the moon to the earth. We can also get distance from the moon to the earth. Mm -hmm. So one month, say in October, it's 30 degrees off the horizon. Mm -hmm. It's 100,000 miles away. Next month, it's 280 degrees off the earth's axis. And it's 300,000 miles away. It's still a full moon. So all full moons are not created equal. They're not. And from one October to the next year, October, it could be completely different. Okay. And again, show me the data. We have done this time and time again. And there's, I mean, if there was a correlation, the biologist would be the first to tell you that it's mm -hmm. not. There's just, there just isn't. You know, what they used to say, what was it? Uh, that was one outdoor writer, uh, depending on when the fall uh, equinox occurs, mm -hmm. you know, X amount of days afterwards. No, you know, a lot of times people hunt the Midwest, uh, you know, when it's warm. Well, okay. What happens to rut activity? Well, it goes down. Oh, it does. Guess what? They're breeding exactly the same time. They're just breeding during the cooler time periods of the day, i.e. night. Now, how do we know this? Is this just my speculation? No. When you go in in January, February, and you start tipping over some does just for harvest data, roadkill data, we take out fetuses. 
and we take the measurement of the, the length of the fetus. Mm-hmm. So it's crown the head down mm-hmm. to the tail, mm-hmm. crown a rump measurements, and just say whatever's 28 centimeters long. We can backdate that to the exact date when conception actually occurs. Mm-hmm. And guess what we find? Once again, it's within a three-day period every year. Well, no. it, it's five days. Well, yeah, the, depending how you look at it. Uh, again, the rut technically is from January, or excuse me, from uh, September to January, technically. But there's always some are early. Why is it? Early. Why is? Why do you say that? What like it, because there's actually does that come into heat as early as September? Yeah. Yeah. Really? And we, and we got doe fawns being bred in March, beginning of March. Because of when they're when they're dropping. Bingo. Habitat, habitat, habitat. I got enough energy. I'm doing well. It, it's crazy. So but let's I, let's say in the Midwest, CJ, where you yeah. know, like in the Midwest, when would you say the the very because oh man you're blowing some things that yeah. I've always believed right out of the yeah. uh, oh, right out of the water. This is we're we're, look, we're looking at the bell shaped curve. We're looking at the ends right here. Right, right. We're talking about the but initial zones when they come in. How I mean, like, are, are we talking one out of a thousand does comes in sometime at the late end of September, um, or in mid October? Is it is it like? 0.2% or something like that? Yeah, I can I can actually figure it out. But say uh, prior to the actual like two-week rut in November when it's the peak, yeah. uh, you can say probably pretty close depending on where you, you're located, about 25% of the does will be bred in say October or earlier. Yeah, you can. The vast majority will be over 50% will be married, uh, be bred the first two weeks of November. Uh, it, it is. It's real important for a doe to be bred in a synchronized time frame, especially up north. Because if I 200 days for gestation, if I have my, my doe that bred early and theoretically she could drop a fawn prior to green up. Yeah. What's the survival rate? Zero. Yeah, zero. Zero. yeah done. Okay. It say she's late. Let's a doe fawn. Well, guess what? Well, then when you look at it from a, a, a standpoint of quality of uh, vegetation, it gets lignified. It's not as palatable. Thus, the quality of milk and the quantity of milk decrease. Well, their chance of survival is less. So for deer up north, it's very, very important to be synchronized. Basically, the two first weeks of, of November is, is it. It has nothing to do with temperature. It has nothing to do with the moon. It's going to happen. Again, our fetal scales tell us that year after year. But, you know, Evan and, and Danny and I, we're all hunting and we haven't seen squat because it's 80 degrees. Mm. But they're being bred. I guarantee they're being bred. Right. But we're not seeing the activity on the ground. Right. And mm-hmm. what's kind of neat that just came out you know, years ago, I wrote and believed that when you talk about buck uh, movement patterns during the rut, it's pretty much random. It's helter skelter. I think I wrote one time. Yeah. And what we're finding out with some more collared deer, it's not as helter skelter as we thought. Uh, we'll have mature deer going into you know, like this, not a core area, but a focal point area. Now, these focal points could say that there's two areas 
uh, say that they're a quarter of a mile away. And mm-hmm. I'm talking areas that are relatively small, less than like 50 acres. And they'll spend one to two days in this focal area. Solid. Moving all around. Yeah. But in those little areas. Catch. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden they leave. And within 12 to 24 hours, they are into another focal point area mm-hmm. for one to two days. Now, as a biologist, I can't tell you that they're breeding in there, but what do you think they're doing, moron? If they're in there for one or two days, yeah, they're probably breeding. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, well, yeah. don't how long does the average buck stay with that one doe once he isolates her and bingo? One to two days. One to two days. You nailed it, Danny. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. So, and again, the biologists get mad at me. These focal areas, I call them a breeding area. Yeah. And, now, and again, I mean, the, the breeding areas, <laughs> I, I've, I've always found whenever I find a buck locked down on a doe, it's out in the middle of it's some obscure spot where he's driven her away from it, from a, a weed bed, a fence row, uh, things like, like that, where, where they can get away from everybody else and isolate her. But they're also consistent spots because Danny, you and yeah. I have talked multiple times being in Kansas. Like when you get to those stages, like you are consistently looking in certain areas in those big open fields because they're isolation That's, points that, that year, year after year, like those deer are still very habitual. I agree. Now, my question is how many of those, if there is such a thing as a breeding area, yeah. a focal point, whatever you want to call it, are, and Evan, you alluded to it, are they generational year after year after year? Uh, I used to think yes, and then I kind of think no, I and think now I don't know anymore. I think it's dependent on the cover that's there. I mean, I can tell yeah, you right exactly. now, there's, <laughs> there's, I don't want to give away too much, but there are some weedy spots that I have hunted in several different states that were consistently places where you would find bucks trying to chase those out into and lock them down. And mm-hmm. one year they get, one year they come in, you come in and they're mowed. Yep. Well, guess what? Or, or, they're not, or it was so dry that they left cattle in for longer. Yeah. So the cattle, cattle then mowed the them down. The terrain changed and, and now it's not a spot anymore. Mm-hmm. If I could add on, because I, I do agree with, I think there is such a thing. The screening cover is important. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I generally say, and, and this is, again, no biological. This is just me. If you get down on your knees, you're about the height of a deer. And if you could see about 75 yards of semi-open habitat. Yep. I think that's a real rough area. I, I, again, it, it, it's it's very, very loose but they need a place to semi hide, yeah. semi be secured. Mm-hmm. And some, some other data, you know, from you make fun of biologists, like I was on genetics, you know, of course a doe is two fawns. And what we've found now that who's your daddy, literally, yeah. we can have blood samples and muscle tissue to find out who's your daddy. Yeah. And what we found is a doe obviously will drop two fawns and there's a 20 to 25% chance that there's two different sires. Yeah. Now we've what? hunted long what? enough. Yeah. That's 20 same. to 25%. <laughs> yeah. Really? You've seen it. There's two big old bucks fighting over a doe and the doe goes running by with a spike on her tail. Mm-hmm. And what's cool, and I don't know why this always happens down south, but they had a doe with triplets. 
Now, of course, you know where my mind Three different sires. Three different sires. And it was a mature eight point, a two and a half year old 10 point. And you'll love this. The third sire was a, bu- a button buck. Holy crap. <laughs> a button buck. Like, go figure. And, huh. you know, generally when you look at uh, live spermazoa from these BBs, button bucks, yeah, they can breed. Uh, it, you, know, you know, we we know that now. Okay. So they've 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 matured enough. Yeah. That they are able to. And because that was that was going to be one of my questions. You know, when we talked about button bucks and and spikes and you know when they actually drop and fawn is one is a button buck able to reproduce that first year and two if you see a button buck does that mean he is a later ground hit was he was he born later in the year therefore his earlier his mother the, was yeah it it again remember when you were 12 years old evan you grew up really fast yeah i didn't grow up till i was 15 really fast it it all depends individuality of deer oh okay and yeah. basically when you talk bbs you're basically talking about the condition of the doe gotcha hmm. okay so there's a lot of variability uh, in that, you know, a lot of things right now, and we've all been guilty of it, of, well, I'm, I'm, I want to shoot that deer. That's a call bug. Yeah. That's a call bug. I'm helping the herd out. Is that right? Boy, you're a good guy, Danny. You took out that call bug. <laughs> well, when you look at it, guess what? There's no way, no way that you can control the deer antler production in the future for in a wild situation you right can't. right right in a pen you can in fact without i mean this is a whole hour conversation on some work they did down in texas but one great big pasture you know 120,000 acres they killed almost if it was a yearling buck and it was a spike they killed it it was a two and a half year old buck if it was six points or less they killed it if it was a three and a half year old buck Anything less than 10 points. I mean, the criteria that inside spread, the only thing that was left in this one pasture, the only 5% of the deer survived. Only 5% of their criteria was these giant bucks. There were no other bucks in the area that could breed. So they had good genetics on the male side. Well, they had another pasture, exact same thing, but they didn't hardly shoot anything. It was just regular hunting. And it was there, it's there. They shot it, they shot it. After 10 years, you would expect where they shot all these little bucks that their offspring would just be giant, right? Mm. Well, when you measured these areas where they did this intensive calling, oh my, it's 95% of the deer that hit the bucks got killed. What they found was when you measured the bucks that survived versus the bucks on the other area, no difference in antler quality or inches whatsoever. Yes. So, so then are there any studies? Cause I've always heard that doe genetics and lineage play more into antler size and growth on the genetic side when it comes to bucks than does the sire, the dad's genetics on antler growth and yeah, potential. I, I read that too, Evan. It's like 55, 45, but it was a low so sample. It was a low sample size. Okay. And basically, you know, 50, 50, 50. But yeah, I, I read that. Uh, I don't know if I really like the data uh, on it, but yeah. It, but again, you cannot control. What was interesting on this one uh, study down in Texas, they had a, a, 
uh, geez, I hope I got this right. It was a four and a half year old deer. Now they had deer that were bucks that were literally eight and a half, nine and a half year old deer bucks. Mm. And the dominant buck that was doing most of the breeding was only three and a half years old. And he scored 130 inches. Oh, wow. And he was a dominant buck. Again, mm -hmm. individuality of deer. It, it's, it's true. It, it, yeah. it happens. Now, is that, is that an exception to the rule though, CJ? I mean, I always feel no. like, you know, four and five-year-old deer, that's when they're at their physical peak mm -hmm. and like, and they're, that's when they're the strongest, not just in antler size, but physically they are the strongest at that age point. It, it, is that typically when they're going to be most dominant? You would think so, but it's not. It goes individuality of deer. You can have three and a half year old deer that are total rednecks. Really? Hmm. Just huh. rednecks. Yeah. Yeah. That'll yeah. just boss everybody around. You know, some of the data doesn't prove this. But I still believe it. And again, they did a pen study. And again, it's a little different dynamic there. But I would argue it's not antler size. It's body size and attitude that dictates dominance in the rut. Yes. Right. Uh, again, some of the pen studies uh, like Mississippi State proved that that was not true. Uh, but again, that's a pen study, uh, not in the wild. So that's you know, conjecture literally on my behalf. Right. Uh, another study that uh, Clint McCoy, he's uh, one of the deer biologists in Ohio. He was working on his PhD in Clemson, did a real interesting study where he, he asked these hunters and he had actual data on it. What's the best day of the week to hunt? <laughs> <laughs> And like, again, this was free, free, removing deer, hundred percent free, uh, South Carolina. And, you know, this time they had guns, bows, everything. They were allowed a lot of deer uh, hunters in the area. And what he found was, which was really interesting, the highest deer uh, density of hunters were the weekend warriors, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And basically the first day when you let the, the hunter armies in the deer movements decreased 22 percent the first day yeah huh second so day it went down to 34 percent so tuesday wednesday gotta be the best day then nope because they're still recovering and they're still scared to go back in so wednesday they get a little bit more braver go back in thursday afternoon they're going back to their same patterns <laughs> and then friday you guessed it here they <laughs> come again <laughs> so and again, it was real interesting to me that it's like, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. If you have a lot of hunters in the area, that best day of the week was actually Thursday and Thursday, Thursday afternoon huh. uh, to get in. But many of us can't get off during the, the day and what have you. And in, uh, in, oh, oh, Evan, I got to pick on you're going to like this one. I want to pick on Danny. Danny. Here we go. 85% of all bucks make scrapes during the daytime or nighttime. Jeez. I, I, I'm going daytime. Well, you're, I'm going you're daytime. playing devil's advocate. I mean, common, um, common conception would be nighttime, but I, 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 I would say day as well. I, I mean, I, I see them scraping during the day a lot. So yeah. And and to me, scraping 
again, it's like it's like a bulletin board, right? So it's in that transition from summer velvet to that October area that they want to be in for that that initial you know pre wet area. So I think they're in the day as they're moving or getting up out of bed. You tell me going to and from CJ, food sources. That, we're both saying day. Think about your trail cameras. 85% of all scrapes occur at night. Okay. Dang it. <laughs> and I'm not a poacher. Yeah. And I know that. Right. At nighttime. Now you see it. Obviously you're biased because you're hunting during the day. You're not hunting at night. Right. So I guess you are not poachers, but it happens at, at nighttime. Okay. Scrapes have basically, you know, obviously sent communication. There's three things, you know, pulled out ground. You have that overhanging branch and you have bucks that are rub urinating down over their tarsal glands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you eliminate, and I did this in an area, uh, this was years ago. I took every scrape that I could find on the one edge of the property and I destroyed it by cutting off that overhanging branch. Mm. And you can do this with trail cameras. Yeah. Buck visitation to those areas went down significantly. Mm -hmm. My strategy was, they're going to leave the east side of the property, come over to the west side of the property, and I'll have more success. Well, that kind of sounds good, but it didn't happen. Hmm. Possibly, they left my property entirely and, hmm. and went to somebody else's property. But that overhanging branch is really uh, the key for scent communication, whether it's forehead gland, nasal gland, preorbital. We don't really know. Uh, what is, but the, you know, obviously the hawk gland or tarsal gland is how deer identify uh, themselves. Uh, you know, I used to go to a check stations and I would tell the hunters, you got to take off those hawk glands because it'll ruin the meat. Well, of course that's not true, but I'd have a great big bag of hawk glands that I would use uh, in my hunting area. Uh -huh. And, you know, Evan, you had alluded to, you know, the social hierarchy. Where does this buck fit in? Like a new buck, uh, mm -hmm. you know, well, that scent is obviously, you know, I used to say the deer are nothing more than hundred pound noses walking through the woods. And, you know, we've all seen that just hunt the wind. We all know that now, but there's many different reasons why a target buck could leave your area. We know when a buck is like a year and a half old, oh, 50 to 75% of those bucks will leave the maternal home range and never to return that oh. happens year after year it's, after year it's that high yeah uh some is even higher uh what we did uh, here in maryland we did a, a, a real neat study that when quality deer management first start coming in we implemented a 15 inch inside spread so anything under 15 inch inside spread was illegal to shoot anything over 15 inches was legal and what we found was Prior to implementing a quality deer management, this inside spread, we had 70% of our yearling bucks leave our hunting area. 70%. Mm. Once we implemented that 50, uh, 50 or a 15 inch inside spread, only 54% of those yearling bucks left. Because they're not and getting kicked out by bigger, more older, more, more aggressive pushed, bucks. Pushed around. Mm -hmm. And what and I couldn't measure this, but here's what happened. We did an aggressive doe harvest, aggressive. And what we have come to believe, 
in addition to like Danny, what you were saying to other bigger bucks is I, I would argue the maternal pressure on these yearling bucks is higher than the other bucks. Really? Uh, I'm kicking them out of the maternal home range. Thus, when biologists yell at you to take out those early, one, from a food standpoint, of course, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one, one average deer, 100 pound doe is going to eat three quarters of a ton of vegetation on a yearly basis. Oh, wow. I mean, that's just a 100 pound doe. Think about, you know, you got bigger deer than 100 pounds. Plus, from a food standpoint, but from bucks leaving the area, you shoot out the mama. There's no maternal pressure. He'll stay on your Sticks back. Around. Mm. And the difference between 70% dispersal versus 54%, what we found, uh, we saved eight different bucks from leaving our property and staying on our property into the, you know, for the rest of their lives. Right. Mm. Now, let me throw some other stuff. This is rare, but it, it does happen. Uh, two different studies, one in Texas, one in Louisiana. A buck had two distinct home ranges just two different circles yeah remember yeah. i told you about deer have sight fidelity love of sight sure that's mm -hmm. the vast majority mm -hmm. these bucks and they would leave in around you guessed it the november time period mm -hmm. november december what was really weird a one buck in louisiana left two years in a row on the exact day mm. Mm. Go figure. Mm. I have no idea. But one of the ways to remember you have a target buck and you, you, it disappears. Well, I guess somebody killed it. Maybe not. Right. Right. We also have bucks and does doing excursions. Excursions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For whatever reason. And again, it's bucks and does during the rut, outside the rut, June, July. January, it doesn't matter. They take off for two or three days hmm. and then just come back. Hmm. We don't know why, but a lot of times Maybe the ones that looking, do leave looking for their, new forage. Well, some people believe, and I it's I used to believe what you said, Danny. It's food related. You know, it's nope, it's not. We looked at habitat quality from where they end up to where they were. We believe that the buck and or doe may had been revisiting the maternal home range or where they grew up. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Hard to, hard to prove. Yeah. But they do this and like hmm. it disappeared. Well, somebody killed it the next year. There's that same buck. The, the same. <laughs> there it is again. Uh, go figure. It's very, very frustrating. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people, you know, they do habitat management and obviously it's a way to go food plots, what have you. The, the bottom line is whenever I go to a property and do, you know, the first thing I try to use what what God put there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Why spend all this money on food plots when the vast majority of properties look straight up in the air? And if there's no sunlight hitting the forest floor. You have bad forest cover. You just yeah. do. And, you know, many people have said that a deer's favorite friend is a steel or a Husqvarna chainsaw. <laughs> How's that for a plug? Yeah. And what, what deer do not, well, they don't like mature forests. 
the only time they're in a mature forest is when the acorns are dropping. Mm-hmm. Well, that could be a month, maybe two at most. Mm-hmm. The rest of the year, they like early successional tree species. They like the edge, a deer's favorite four-letter word that starts with the E and ends with an E. Mm-hmm. Edge, edge, edge. Mm-hmm. Think where your best tree stand ever was. I'm willing to bet that do you maximize your edge component? Two types of edge vegetative edge say you got a square property that you're hunting the northwest corner is corn south east is swamp the other one's uh, oak hickory the other one's alfalfa learning about habitat edge where do you put your tree stand i.e right in the middle because you maximized your edge component part one edge Part two of edge is topographical edge, a saddle, a bench, a a gully, wherever Mm. you maximize vegetative edge and topographical edge, you'll see more deer. There's no question. Interesting. Well, you have, especially when you were talking about the moon phase stuff, you, (laughs) you really, you really blew my mind with a couple of things that you said there. And I'd almost like to have you back on and have somebody to challenge that and have a debate because <laughs> I lose. Man, <laughs> if, it's, if I learned something from it, fantastic. I mean, that, that was, uh, um, that was something that I wasn't expecting to hear. I mean, I've, I, I know that that breeding is going on when it's supposed to, regardless of whether you have uh, terrible weather, full moon, all of those things don't matter. Hot but gosh. I always felt like that full moon affected their daytime movement. And, um, yeah. and that's, that's, so you, you're saying when the full moon's around, just hunt the way you normally would the same hours <laughs> that you normally would. When you got five minutes to hunt, hunt. Yeah. You know, if you know these people that believe in the moon, say it's a you know it's an early rut, if you will. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Well, why don't my fetuses show me that? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can go. We'll have a, a, a fetus that's twenty eight centimeters, one that's thirty two centimeters, and I can tell you right to the day when the peak of the rut is. Mm-hmm. And it's a bell shaped curve, year after year after year. If the moon affected the rut either early or late, we it would, would see that. Yep. in our fetal, fetal data mm. and you're, it's it's consistent year after year after year i mean there's just no argument but again if you believe it if you want to go ahead and do it <laughs> it uh, gives you uh, confidence yeah uh we are it. superstitious beings yes, give me that we yeah. are. <laughs> well, let, let me blow you away with this does the wind affect deer movements how about relative humidity how about temperature how about moon cover you give me every weather parameter there is, and guess what? Bottom line, deer have to do what we say: feed, breed, sleep, and avoid predation. We've looked at data that it's a cold front. Oh man, we got to get out now. It's ahead of a cold front. We've all done it. I do it still to this day. Guess what? Deer still have to feed, breed, sleep and avoid predation hmm. show me the data we've looked at deer, a food plot or a weather parameters plus one plus two mm-hmm. minus one minus two they may they're still moving the exact number of footsteps 
but they may not move where you're hunting the right, yeah. to somewhere else, but they're still eating. They may not travel. They're still eating five, yeah. They're eating five pounds yeah. of food a day. Right. I mean, this may not be in your area. They just might not travel as much. And Bingo. the difference between moving and traveling. Yeah, exactly. You nailed it. You nailed it. Well, man, CJ, we could go on with you for a long time. I man, mm-hmm. uh, I'd be willing to say out of all the podcasts that we've done, this is the least that me and I mean you you had a bunch of information. We're gonna need to do we're gonna need to do another one with you, buddy. Um absolutely. You definitely did not disappoint. You gave us some talking points that uh we want to go on with and uh, hopefully we can get you back on here pretty soon what's your uh what's your first hunt that you have coming up or are you even hunting yet with all this broken down body that you've got <laughs> i may be broken but i'm still stupid as you danny so <laughs> I, i'll be hunting with a 54 pound hoyt this year but i'll be hunting. i get, guarantee it what's the first one that you have away from home Kansas. Kansas. All right. Well, yeah, out of state. I, I don't, I, dude, nobody should be going to Kansas. I'm telling you, the deer population's down. It's super dry. <laughs> it's not worth going out there. Yeah. Just wipe it off of your bucket That's list. That's exactly right. Evan tipped them all over. <laughs> I've been trying to. Well, CJ, we appreciate you coming on. Hope everybody enjoyed it, and we'll catch you on the next one. Appreciate it, Evan. Good seeing you, Danny. Good Thanks, luck boys. to y'all.